Greetings, friends, and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me, Jeremy Walker. Each week, we read through the sermons that were preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a preeminent Victorian pastor, preacher, and evangelist. We try to select a featured sermon each week that gives us a representative sense of the output of this man of God. We hope that today's podcast will be a blessing to you. And if you're able to share that blessing with others, one way you can do so is to leave a review on your favorite podcast app. That's especially helpful, I'm told, if you live outside of the United States. So we can be found on uh, Twitter or X now at Reading Spurgeon. And you can also find us at mediagratii.org slash podcasts, where you can sign up for a weekly newsletter where we will identify and give a link to the week's featured sermon. The featured sermon this week, as we read from 1025 to 1031, is Sermon 1027. Now, it's the last sermon that was preached in the year for 1871, preached on the last day of the year. So if you're following with us, that's volume 17 in the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit, and the uh, we're reading on then into volume 18 as the week progresses. So if you've reached today and you're listening to this podcast, God willing, you're with us in volume 18. And that's where we'll pick up next week with Sermon 1035 on the real presence, the great want of the church. But this week's sermon is entitled The Joy of the Lord, The Strength of His People. It has a couple of particular features, uh, one of which is more unusual, one of which is a little more regular in Spurgeon's sermonic output. So the the, the more uh, regular feature is that this is a sermon preached from multiple texts. On this occasion, it's from Nehemiah 8.10 and Nehemiah 12.42-43. Taken together, the joy of the Lord is your strength, and then and the singers sang aloud with Jezrahiah their overseer. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The wives also and the children rejoiced, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. Now Spurgeon does fairly regularly make use of more than one text, sometimes to show complementarity or uh, coincidence, sometimes to... Uh, set uh, a theme in its proper and fuller perspective, sometimes to draw a contrast, uh, sometimes uh, to make some kind of a theological or experimental point. Here, he's trying to show with two texts from the same prophet the, the characteristic of the joy of God's people. What's slightly less usual is that on this occasion, Spurgeon is very much building on a previous sermon. Now, he, he says in a couple of places that he has no genius for a sequence of sermons. He sometimes does connect them. At times in the past, for example, we've uh, seen him preach, in effect, a, a Trinitarian mini-series, sometimes a few weeks apart, where he, he picks up different aspects of the, the work of the three persons of the Godhead. On this occasion, he's very much plugged in to the previous sermon. Now, that was preached on December the 24th, 1871, and its title was Joy Born at Bethlehem, from Luke chapter 2, 10 to 12, 
with the emphasis on the good tidings of great joy. Now he's preaching on December the 31st of 1871, the Lord's Day morning at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and this is how he begins, yoking it to what he said before. Last Sabbath day in the morning, I spoke of the birth of our Saviour as being full of joy to the people of God and indeed to all nations. We then looked at the joy from a distance. We will now in contemplation draw nearer to it and perhaps as we consider it and remark the multiplied reasons for its existence, some of those reasons may operate upon our own hearts and we may go out of this house of prayer ourselves partakers of the exceeding great joy. We shall count it to have been a successful morning if the people of God are made to rejoice in the Lord, and especially if those who have been bowed down and burdened in soul shall receive the oil of joy for mourning. It is no mean thing, no low thing, to comfort the Lord's mourners. It is a work especially dear to the Spirit of God, and therefore not to be lightly esteemed. Holy sorrow is precious before God and is no bar to godly joy. He tells us later on uh, in this introduction, quite a brief one, as certain fabrics need to be damped before they will take the glowing colours with which they are to be adorned, so our spirits need the bedewing of repentance before they can receive the radiant colouring of delight. The glad news of the gospel can only be printed on wet paper. So he's looking then especially to comfort those who mourn. And from his texts, he wants to draw several themes of thought with these remarks. First, there is a joy of divine origin, the joy of the Lord. And secondly, as he moves on uh, through the first text and into the second, that the joy is to all who partake of it a source of strength, and then that strength shows itself practically, and then this joy and consequently this strength are within our reach today. So the first two points, primarily from the first text, the third point really opens up the second text, and the fourth point draws those things together. It's a quite a straightforward structure. Uh, it's a well-balanced sermon. There's not necessarily the same sense uh, as there is in some that he's uh, got a little bit caught out and, uh, and needs to push on to the end. Uh, the The first point is the longest one, and then Uh, More or less, each succeeding point becomes a little briefer as you're pushing toward a conclusion, Uh, but it's a a well-ordered, well-structured, well-balanced and uh, smoothly progressing sermon. In terms of sermon construction, in that sense, it's a good model. It's a, a homiletical example to us, a good example of how we can construct something for the purpose of teaching. So then there is joy of divine origin. This is his first point. It's the joy of the Lord. And he reminds us that since man fell in the garden, he has too often sought for his enjoyments where the serpent finds his. But we are not left to search for joy, not least not to search for it in this fallen world, It is brought to our doors by the love of God our Father, says the preacher. Joy refined and satisfying, befitting immortal spirits. God has not left us to wander among those unsatisfactory flings which mock the chase which they invite. He has given us appetites which carnal things cannot content. 
God has not left us to wander among those unsatisfactory things which mock the chase which they invite. He has given us appetites which carnal things cannot content, and he has provided suitable satisfaction for those appetites. He has stored up at his right hand pleasures for evermore, which even now he reveals by his Spirit to those chosen ones whom he has taught to long for them. So what Spurgeon wants to do in this first point, after that brief introduction to the point, and and there again there's there's a nice structure. The point is made, briefly introduced, and then some subheadings which flow from it, all well ordered and uh, in good proportion. He wants to analyse that special and peculiar or distinctive pleasure called here the joy of the Lord. What does that mean? First of all, it is a joy which springs from God and has God for its object. All the attributes of God become well springs of joy to the thoughtful, contemplative believer. For such a man says within his soul, All these attributes of my God are mine His power, my protection, His wisdom, my guidance, His faithfulness, my foundation, His grace, my salvation. Spurgeon wants us to, to consider the God whom we trust. How sweet is it to think over all the Lord has done, how he has revealed himself of old, and especially how he has displayed his glory in the covenant of grace and in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. How charming is the thought that he has revealed himself to me personally and made me to see in him my Father, my friend, my helper, my God. So, says our preacher, when the child of God, after admiring the character and wondering at the acts of God, and those are the two uh, things that we look at when we uh, turn to the Lord, can all the while feel, he is my God. I have taken him to be mine. He has taken me to be his. He has grasped me with the hand of his powerful love. Having loved me with an everlasting love, with the bands of loving kindness, has he drawn me to himself. My beloved is mine, and I am his. See how Spurgeon is weaving together these uh, texts of Scripture, these uh, phrases and, and notions from the revelation of God. He says, when you, when you think and feel like that, why then your soul would dance like David before the ark of the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord with all its might. So it's the joy of the Lord because it springs from God and looks to God. A further source of this joy is found by the Christian living near to God in a deep sense of reconciliation to God, of acceptance with God, and yet beyond that of adoption and close relationship to God. Oh, to know, beloved, that God actually loves us, he says. I have often told you I cannot preach upon that theme, for it is a subject to muse upon in silence, a matter to sit by the hour together and meditate upon the infinite, to love an insignificant creature, an ephemera of an hour, a shadow that declineth. Is not this a marvel? For God to pity me, I can understand. For God to condescend to have mercy upon me, I can comprehend. But for him to love me, for the pure to love a sinner, for the infinitely great to love a worm, is matchless, a miracle of miracles." He wants us to understand we're in relation to God. We were able to cry out, Abba, Father, and that robs us of unhappiness. The spirit of adoption is always attended by love, joy, and peace, which are fruits of the spirit. For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of liberty and joy in Christ Jesus.
And he reminds us that if we have God, then if we're starving at God's table, it's because we are stinting ourselves. We're holding back because the feast itself, which God serves, is super abundant. And then we have more. The joy of the Lord in the Spirit springs also from an assurance that all the future, whatever it may be, is guaranteed by divine goodness. If my salvation is a matter of hazard and jeopardy, unmingled joy is not mine, and deep peace is still out of my reach. But when I know that he whom I have rested in has power and grace enough to complete that which he has begun in me and for me, when I see the work of Christ to be no halfway redemption, but a complete and eternal salvation, when I perceive that the promises are established upon an unchangeable basis and are yea and are men in Christ Jesus, ratified by oath and sealed by blood, then my soul hath perfect contentment. Sometimes when Spurgeon preaches like this, you almost get the sense of the words tumbling out of his mouth. He, he has such a rich and deep sense of God's favour in Christ Jesus. He warns us that there's a theology which denies to unbelievers this consolation, and we're not going to enter now into controversy with it, but sorrowfully hint that a heavy chastisement for the errors of that system of doctrine lies in the loss of the comfort which the truth would have brought into the soul. So he says, you don't lose sight of the fact that those whom Christ saves are kept by Christ. This salvation extends through all eternity. And he says, I've not yet taken you into the great deeps of joy, although we've not been uh, dabbling in the shallow streams. There's an abyss of delight for every Christian when he comes into the actual fellowship with God. Do you know what that means, he asks? Not just to know that God is ours, but to enter into the experience of enjoying the love of God. Do you know what it means to walk with God, Enoch's joy, to sit at Jesus' feet, Mary's joy, to lean your head upon Jesus' bosom, John's familiar joy? Oh yes, communion with the Lord is no mere talk with some of us. We have known it in the chamber of affliction. We have known it in the solitude of many a night of broken rest. We have known it beneath discouragements and under sorrows and defamations and all sorts of ills. And we reckon that one dram of fellowship with Christ is enough to sweeten an ocean full of tribulation and that only to know that he is near us and to see the gleaming of his dear eye would transform even hell itself into heaven if it were possible for us to enjoy his presence there. I had a sweet conversation with uh, one of the, uh, the, the flock for whom I have a responsibility here uh, just recently in which someone who's been through uh, a, a deep and painful trial of body testified to the way that they had enjoyed an unusual sense of Christ's closeness, uh, the, the sense of, of the Lord Jesus uh, giving to them peace and calming the the storm of trouble that was raging around them, uh, and that re remembrance of, of the Christ who could say uh, in the stormy sea of Galilee to the waves, peace be still, and could rebuke the winds, that that was a real sweet assurance, and that in the midst of their trouble, they could literally pillow their head and know that Christ was close at hand and God was watching over them. And this, says Spurgeon, this kind of thing is the joy of the Lord, 
fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Beloved, if we reach this point, we must labour to maintain our standing, for our Lord says to us, Abide in me. The habit of communion is the life of happiness. So we've had four elements of this joy of the Lord. It springs from God and looks to God. It involves a deep sense of reconciliation to God, acceptance with him, close relationship even unto adoption. It's an assurance regarding the future as guaranteed by divine goodness. It involves this actual fellowship with God and it involves too the honour of being allowed to serve him. It is a joy worth worlds to be allowed to do good. I wonder if we think of the privilege uh, we're granted to, to serve God if we see those opportunities as blessings bestowed rather than burdens landed upon our backs. To do what we do in Jesus' name will in its measure array us in Jehovah's joy. What a wonderful thought that, that these are the, the possibilities we have, that when we're saying your will be done, there is joy in yielding ourselves unto God. And he says that the usual communions which we have with our beloved, though exceeding precious, will never equal those which we enjoy when we have to break through thorns and briars to be at him. There's this uh, submissiveness. There's this glorying in tribulations. It's a joyous thing, he goes on, when in the midst of mournful circumstances, we yet feel that we cannot mourn because the bridegroom is with us. Blessed is that man who in the most terrible storm is driven in, not from his God, but even rides upon the crest of the lofty billows nearer towards heaven. There is a highway to heaven, he says, and all in it are safe. But in the middle of that road, there's a special way, an inner path, and all who walk therein are happy as well as safe. Many professors are only just within the hedge. They walk in the ditch by the roadside, and because they're safe there, they're content to put up with all the inconveniences of their walk. But he who takes the crown of the causeway and walks in the very centre of the road that God has cast up shall find that no lion shall be there, neither shall any ravenous beast go up thereon. For there the Lord himself shall be his companion and will manifest himself to him. You shallow Christians who do but believe in Christ and barely that, whose Bibles are unread, whose closets are unfrequented, whose communion with God is a thing of spasms. You have not the joy of the Lord, neither are you strong. So I beseech you, rest not as you are, but let your conscious feebleness provoke you to seek the means of strength. And that means of strength is to be found in a pleasant medicine, sweet as it is profitable, the delicious and effectual medicine of the joy of the Lord. I think it's uh, worth explaining there or just underlining that when Spurgeon talks about those who walk in the very centre of the road, that that's not just a, a sort of a capricious grant that some people enjoy. It's not a, a, an unexpected blessing that just lands upon some. He, he defines it. He says, if you're, you're living a shallow spiritual life, if you're not communing with God by the means that he's appointed, if you're not engaged with the word of God, if you're not engaged in prayer, if your relationship to God is spasmodic rather than a habitual, then, then you'll be walking on the margins. But to seek after God is to come into the very center of the road. 
So he says we need to move on and we move on with him to the second point that this joy is a source of great strength. And again, he's managing his material now. It's a little more compact. Uh, It's uh, still well balanced that this uh, source of great strength is because the joy arises from considerations which always strengthen the soul. He is the joyful Christian who uses the doctrines of the gospel for spiritual meat as they were meant to be used, to contemplate the great truths of divine election, of eternal love, of covenant engagements, of justification by faith through the blood of Christ and the indwelling and perpetual abiding of the Holy Ghost in his people. To turn over these things is to extract joy from them, and this also is strengthening to the mind. To press the heavenly grapes by meditation and make the red wine flow forth in torrents is an exercise as strengthening as it is exhilarating. Joy comes from the same truths which support our strength and comes by the process of meditation. So he says, if you want this strengthening joy, contemplate God's saving truth, the wonders of his salvation. And again, The joy of the Lord within us is always the sign and symbol of strong spiritual life. Holy vivacity betokens spiritual vigor. I said, or reveals, it shows it's there. I said that he who had spiritual joy gained it by communion with God. But communion with God is the surest fosterer or developer of strength. You cannot be with a strong God without getting strength yourself. For God is always a transforming God. Regarding and looking upon him, our likeness changes till we become, in our measure, like our God. So the sunlight of joy usually goes with the warmth of spiritual life. As the light of joy varies, so does the warmth of holy strength. He who dwells in the light of God is both happy and strong. He who goes into the shade and loses the joy of the Lord becomes weak at the same time. So the joy of the Lord becomes our strength as being an indicator of its rise or fall. When a soul is really vigorous and active, it is like the torrent which dashes down the mountainside, which scorns in winter to own the bonds of frost. In a few hours, the stagnant pools and slowly moving streams are enchained in ice, but the snow king must bring forth all his strength ere he can manacle the rushing torrent. So when a soul dashes on with the sacred force of faith, it is hard to freeze it into misery. Its vigour secures its joy. Then the man who possesses the joy of the Lord finds it his strength in another respect, that it fortifies him against temptation. The rejoicing Christian is proof against temptation because he's already satisfied with what he has and proof against persecution because you can well afford to be laughed at if you win at such a rate as the Christian does. You may scoff, he says, but I know what true religion is. Then such a man becomes strong for service too. What can he not do who is happy in his God? By his God he leaps over a wall or breaks through a troop. Strong is he too for any kind of self-sacrifice. To the God who gives him all and remains to him as his perpetual portion, such a man gives up all that he has and thinks it no surrender. It is but laying up his treasure in his own peculiar or distinctive treasure house, even in the God of his salvation. And then such a man, joyful, is a strong man in a calm and restful manner. The ruffled man is ever weak. He's in a hurry and does things badly. But the man full of joy within is quiet. He bides his time 
and crouches in the fullness of his strength. He does not himself always know what he could do, says Spurgeon. His weakness is the more apparent to himself because of the strength which the Holy Ghost puts upon him. But when the time comes, his weakness only illustrates the divine might, while the man goes calmly on, conquering and to conquer. And this is the man then who stands where others fall, who sings where others weep, who wins where others fly, who glorifies his God where others bring dishonor on themselves and on the sacred name. This then is the joy that brings us strength, and this is the way that the strength shows itself. I don't know if you're noticing as we work through this, I know I'm giving you a few longer quotes on this occasion, how much scripture Spurgeon is bringing into his speech, how many little phrases and quotes he's drawing from across the word of God. And this is something of which, uh, which gives his sermons their richness, uh, their, their bite, their flavor. So he's, he's hastening on in the third place now. This strength leads to practical results. And here, remember, he's turning to that second text in particular. First, it leads to great praise. The singers sang aloud. Their minstrelsy was hearty and enthusiastic. Preaching then is sowing. Prayer is watering, but praise is the harvest. We have put away harps and trumpets and organs, he says. Let us mind that we really rise above the need of them. Uh, Spurgeon uh, was quite persuaded that Uh, congregational praise should be unaccompanied. Uh, He wasn't above uh, helping some of his students to uh, provide for themselves uh, uh, an organ or something like it in some of their churches, but uh, he himself was committed to unaccompanied praise. He says then, I think we do well to dispense with these helps of the typical dispensation. He says, basically, that's the kind of stuff that belongs to the Old Testament. They are all inferior, even in music, to the human voice and there is assuredly no melody or harmony like those created by living tongues. But let us mind that we do not put away an atom of the joy. Let us be glad when in the congregation we unite in psalmody. It's a wretched thing to hear the praises of God rendered professionally as if the mere music were everything. It's horrible to have a dozen people in the table pew singing for you as if they were proxies for the whole assembly. Makes you wonder what he'd think of our bands today, doesn't it? It's shocking to me to be present in places of worship where not a tenth of the people ever venture to sing at all. And these do it through their teeth so very softly that one had need to have a microscope invented for his ears to enable him to hear the dying strain. Out upon such mumbling and murdering of the praises of God, if men's hearts were joyous and strong, they would scorn such miserable worship. So says Spurgeon, It's not a performance for a few gifted people and the rest of us either watch or a few of us mutter along. It's something in which the whole congregation ought to be engaged. We're not often guilty of disturbing the world with our music. The days in which Christian zeal interfered with the wicked seem to have gone by. We've settled down into more orderliness and I am afraid also into more lukewarmness. But the next result, great sacrifice. You can persuade a man to give a considerable sum. A great many arguments at last overcome him, and he does it because he would have been ashamed not to do it. But in his heart he wishes you had not come that way and had gone to some other donor. That's the most acceptable gift to God, which is given rejoicingly. It's well to feel that whatever good your gift may do to the church or the poor or the sick, it's twice as much benefit to you to give it. 
It's well to give because you love to give, as the flower which pours forth its perfume because it never dreamed of doing otherwise, or like the bird which quivers with song because it is a bird and finds a pleasure in its notes, or like the sun which shines, not by constraint, but because, being a sun, it must shine, or like the waves of the sea which flash back the brilliance of the sun, because it is their nature to reflect and not to hoard the light. Spurgeon says the joyful man gives joyfully. He loves to honour God with his gifts. And then there are other expressions of joy. The people in Nehemiah's day rejoiced for God had made them to rejoice with great joy. Now, he says, there are some professing Christians who imagine the sorrow of the Lord to be their strength. They glory in the spirit of bondage and in an unbelieving experience, having great acquaintance with the corruption of their hearts, sometimes of a rather too practical character. They make the deformities of the saints to be their beauty spots and their very faults to be their evidences. Such men denounce all who rejoice in the Lord and only tolerate the unbelieving. Their strength lies in being able to take you through all the catacombs of nature's darkness and to show you the rottenness of their evil hearts. Well, such strength as that let those have who will, but we are persuaded that our text is nearer to wisdom. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't be a Christian, says Spurgeon, who imagines that the sorrow of the Lord is your strength. While we do know something of our corruption and mourn it, We know something of the world's troubles and sometimes lament as we bear them, yet there is a joy in the perfect work of Christ and a joy in our union to him which uplifts us far above all other considerations. God becomes to us such a strength that we cannot help showing our joy in our ordinary life. And then the text also shows that holy joy leads to family happiness as the wives and the children rejoice also. I have lately seen several children from households which God has blessed, he says, and I have rejoiced to see that father and mother know the Lord and that even the last of the family has been brought to Jesus. Oh, happy households, where the joy is not confined to one, but where all partake of it. And then he says it was heard afar off too. The joy of the Lord should be observed throughout our neighbourhood and many who might otherwise have been careless of true religion will then inquire what makes these people glad and create such happy households. Your joy shall thus be God's missionary. And now he concludes that this joy and strength are both within our reach. For the Lord had made them glad with great joy. It is God alone who can give us this great joy. And then it must be within the reach of any, for God can give it to one as well as to another. If it depended upon our good works or our natural abilities, some of us could never reach it. But if God is the source and giver of it, he may give it to me as well as to thee, my brother, and to thee as well as to another. And what then? What was the way in which God gave this joy? Well, he gave it to them by their being attentive hearers. They were not only hearers, but they heard with their ears, their ears were into the word, it was read to them and they sucked it in. And having heard it, they felt the power of it and they wept. Did that seem the way to joy? It was indeed. Remember he said at the beginning, not now that we're twisting it about and saying, well, maybe sorrow is our strength, but no, these bright colours of joy are painted onto wet paper. The word is heard, the word is felt. And after this, when they'd felt the power of the word, we see that they worshipped God devoutly. 
They bowed their head. Their postures indicated what they felt within. Then they understood what they heard. Never be content with hearing a sermon unless you can understand it, says Spurgeon. And if there be a truth above you, strain after it. Strive to know it. Bible reader, do not be content with simply going through the words of the chapter. Pray the Holy Ghost to tell you the meaning and use proper means for finding out that meaning. Ask those who know and use your own enlightened judgment to discover the sense. When shall we have done with formalism of worship and come into living adoration? And then last, but by no means least, they were eager to obey. Oh, for the time when all believers shall search the word of God, when they shall not be content with saying, well, I've joined myself with a certain body of Christians and they do so and therefore I do so. May no man say to himself any longer, such is the rule of my church, but may each say, I am God's servant and not the servant of man, not the servant of 39 articles of the prayer book or the catechism. I stand to my own master, and the only law book I acknowledge is the book of his word inspired by his spirit. Oh, blessed day, when every man shall say, I want to know wherein I am wrong. I desire to know what I am to do. I am anxious to follow the Lord fully. Well then, if your joy in God leads you to practical obedience, you may rest assured it has made you strong in the very best manner. Now he says, as he closes, Beloved brothers and sisters, we had before I went away for needed rest a true spirit of prayer among us. He makes mention of setting out for the continent joyfully, heading off to Mentone in order to get his, his rest because of his uh, broken strength. He says, I left you with the names of some 80 persons proposed for church membership. I don't know about you, but that's more members than some of us have got in our congregations at the moment. My beloved officers, he says, with great diligence, have visited these and others, and next Lord's Day we hope to receive more than a 100, perhaps 120 fresh members into the church. It's great, isn't it? Blessed be God for this. I should not have felt easy in going away if you'd been in a barren, cold, dead state, but there was a real fire blazing on God's altar, and souls were being saved. Now I desire that this gracious zeal should continue and be renewed. It has not gone out in my absence, I believe, but I desire now a fresh blast from God's Spirit to blow the flame very vehemently. So let us meet for prayer tomorrow and let the prayer be very earnest and let those wrestlers who've been moved to agonizing supplication renew the ardor and frequency of their desires and may we be a strong people and consequently a joyous people in the strength and joy of the Lord. May sinners in great numbers look unto Jesus and be saved. Amen and Amen. Not a bad way to go from one year into another. I hope you'll agree. Not a bad way for us to sign off this particular podcast. I hope that you will indeed know the joy of the Lord and it will prove the strength of his people, not just in a general sense, but your particular strength. And I trust you'll join us next week as we move on to Sermon 1035, The Real Presence, The Great Want of the Church. We're reading Sermons 1032 to 1038, and I hope you'll join us for that and join us again for this podcast. And until then, may God bless us and give us that joy and that strength and the spirit of prayer and supplication and a will to labor for the glory of our God and King.